Let's be seated. So I think we've all been hurt, and many of us will also have lived with the shame that at some point in our lives we have hurt others. And some of us in this room may have even been through that bizarre situation where someone hurt us, but then declared themselves to be the victim simply because we called them on their sin. And if you have carried the burden of being hurt or knowing that you've hurt someone else, forgiveness is wonderful. Forgiveness can be like the opening word of a new chapter in your life, a fresh start. Because when you forgive someone, lots of things start to change. When you forgive a person, it might well impact your relationship with them. It very probably will impact your relationship with yourself, and it absolutely will impact your relationship with God. And before we get further into this book of Jonah, with everything that it has to say to us about the forgiveness of God, I think it's just worth pausing a while and, and really looking at what this word means, what forgiveness really is. What do we mean when we say forgive? Well, uh, sometimes when people hear forgiveness, the word, what they think of is tolerance. They are not the same thing. Forgiveness and tolerance are not the same thing. Tolerance is where you put up with something. For example, <clears throat> I tolerate lettuce. Now, you know that I've got strong feelings about certain foods, but you'll be relieved to hear, I believe there is nothing wrong with lettuce. I eat lettuce. I just do not get excited by lettuce. And we were out the other day, amen. Someone said amen, wow. We were out the other day and uh, someone ordered a wedge salad. I wanted to say, that's not a salad, is it? That's just a big vegetable cut in half. It's not actually a salad. It's the laziest excuse for a salad known to humankind. But it's harmless. A wedge salad, I think we can agree, is, is harmless. I have very neutral feelings about lettuce. I tolerate lettuce. Uh, still, nonetheless, the, the apologist, Michael Ramsden, says tolerance is actually not a very nice idea, if you think about it. So if you invited me round to your house for a meal, and at the end of the meal you said, how was the food? And I said, well, it was tolerable. Thank you. <laughs> And your company was, was tolerable as well. How would you feel? You'd feel about as lovable as the lazy wedge salad you so rudely served to me, I'm sure. There's <laughs> like, like this whole list of stuff. I'll come out to your house and just get a glass of water. I'll understand it's, it's my preaching that's done it. Um, as we drift from Jesus Christ in this Western culture... And we drift from very clear ideas about right and wrong. And we drift away from the idea of truth and falsehood and good and evil and holiness and sin. Tolerance has become, I believe, in our Western culture, uh, like a substitute for forgiveness. It's the mantra, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, let's just all be one great big happy wedge salad. And, um, you know, the United States of salad. It's, it's, a, it's a fine concept, it's lovely, until we encounter something genuinely nasty, something genuinely evil, repugnant, something foul, 
and hurtful, then what? When you encounter that, is tolerance really a virtue in the face of evil? Tolerance only works with minor problems. Forgiveness, that is a different idea because forgiveness works even with the worst of sin. Forgiveness has a power even over the worst of sin where tolerance runs out of steam. And tolerance is a secular idea. Forgiveness is a very Christian idea. To call wrong, wrong, and yet to treat the person in the wrong with as much love as there is, is a very Christian idea. Christian forgiveness is, in fact, unique because at its heart is Christ. And Christ is unique. Christ has a unique perspective on sin. He sees sin for what it is. Because he is God, he is uniquely and perfectly placed to see sin and to judge sin. And he sees it for what it is, he calls it for what it is, and yet also nonetheless Christ forgives sin. And he achieves this forgiveness of sin by paying for it. He is the judge of it, but he lets that judgment fall upon himself. The wages of sin is death, says scripture. Sin is not nice. Sin is not tolerable. Thomas Cranmer said the burden of our sins is intolerable. In the ancient confession of the uh, 1552 Book of Common Prayer, the burden of them is intolerable. Sin is intolerable. It can't be tolerated. It costs and it kills. And Christ, the forgiver, pays that cost of death himself. That is how he forgives. He dies. And as Christ is on that cross... Uh, being wounded for our sins as he's bleeding out on the cross, as he is drowning in his own lungs on the cross for your sins, note his words as he dies. He does not pray, Father, tolerate them. He prays, Father, forgive. That is an incredible thing, to see sin for all it is, to pay for that sin with his holiness, and yet to love those who have sinned against him to love them even with his own life. And the Apostle Paul says to us, if you get the cross, if that light bulb has gone on in your head and in your heart, Colossians 3.13, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I think for this reason, at our fall festival next week, if you fill the narthex, as you threaten to do, with deviled eggs... And again, we have to endure the sulfur stench of Beelzebub's zygote. I'm telling you, I will not tolerate it, but I will forgive you. (laughs) Forgiveness is is Christianity. Forgiveness is Christ. Forgiveness is the mission of Christ. It's the mission of the church of Christ. And it is Jonah's mission as well, to approach sin, to call it wrong, and to love it, and to forgive it, and to be reconciled. And Jonah is sent off. Talk about testing a theory at the extremes. Jonah, a Jew from the people of God, a prophet of the people of God, is sent off to the most wretched city on earth, testing the theory at the extremes. And he is sent to that city not to give them a lecture, but to preach the forgiveness of sins to a pagan enemy. That is the mission of the church. And in week one, what a goofball 
We see Jonah fleeing from the job. And then in week two, as Ben so clearly said, we see Jonah fleeing from God himself. And Jonah is on this ship trying to get away from his job to preach forgiveness. And God sends a violent storm to make him change his mind. And we pick up the account in Jonah chapter 1, verse 11. Let's turn to Jonah 1, 11 as a body, please. Jonah 1, 11. Then the men of the ship said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So you see immediately the cost of the sin. Jonah's in the wrong. Jonah has to pay. Jonah's going to die. It's all on him. It's all his fault. There's a wage of sin. It's death. He's going to die. And uh, for all of his failings, Jonah here, as he runs away from the job and God, has a little bit of honesty. Sometimes find this with people um, in a situation like this. They get honest. And he doesn't dispute any of this schema. He doesn't dispute that God is, is in the right. He doesn't dispute that he is in the wrong. He does not dispute that God will judge or that God is right to judge or that God will judge. He doesn't dispute that he will be judged and he will have to pay or any of those things. He's cool with all of that. Uh, he even seems to acknowledge that thing that so happens when we sin, when we disobey God, and that is that other people get hurt. Sin it is not like you know, a sniper rifle. It's like a hand grenade. When it goes off, it just blows up and takes people out all over the place. The innocent are often sucked into the crazy consequences of our sin. He doesn't dispute any of that even though he's on the run. But there's still resistance, and he, he doesn't say, here's what we should do, we should repent, and we should turn our hearts around, and let's turn the ship around, and let's head off towards Nineveh, and let's do that thing that God said that we should do. He doesn't say any of those things. He says this instead, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. He'd still rather be dead than forgive his enemy. That would be his preference. And you sometimes still hear it, don't you? Sometimes uh, you still hear that language, things like, you know, I will never forgive. Have you heard that said to you? I'll take this with me to the grave. Have you heard that one? Over my dead body, you can claw it out of my cold, dead hands. Uh, Bishop Jim was sharing a story yesterday uh, about someone who refused to forgive. And, and he, said, he said to this person, he said, but you say the Lord's Prayer every week, don't you? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know what that means, don't you? It means that if you refuse to forgive, you're asking God to refuse to forgive you. She said, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. No, he said, you don't get it. That means you say you would rather go to hell than forgive. And she said, yeah, that's right. I'd rather be in hell than in heaven with my sister. Extraordinary thought. But every pastor has heard someone say it. Why do people say it? Why do people say that they would rather die than forgive? And I think one of the reasons is because we've been really hurt. If you've been really hurt by something foul, something evil, something abusive, it is really hard to forgive. And when we withhold forgiveness... Though it's wrong, it gives us a sense of power. It just gives for a moment a sense of control. 
It gives you a sense that somehow, you know, you can, you can kind of bring order to your life. And you are the only one that can do this forgiving. And if you're going to hold it back, then, then you can say to that person who's done something to you, well, now you're stuck. How do you like it? And there's very good psychological and emotional reason why we do this. It gives us a sense of power and a sense of control when we feel out of control. And when we feel like power has been used against us, it's understandable, but it's not right. And even when objectively our world is in turmoil and we're in the, the washing machine of a storm, even when that's happening, not to forgive just gives a false sense of security. It's why it feels good. And that's what Jonah does. He refuses to forgive. He said, I'd rather drown than go to that place. And then just look at how the language escalates here. Just look at how in the word there are multiple images that build upon one another to say just how severe this storm is getting. Uh, look back at verse 4, for example. The Lord hurled, that's a violent word, a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. You see in verse 5, they hurled the cargo. It's called lightning. They were trying to make it float more readily. Verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid. These are seasoned mariners. Verse 11, the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It rushed upon them. That's what the word means. They were overwhelmed by the flood. Just as Christ drowns in the fluid of his own lungs for your sins on the cross, they are about to inhale water and die. This is beyond their control. There is nothing they can do. And so eventually he said to them, Jonah, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. There's a lot of hurling going on here. One resists the obvious joke about seasickness. And for that matter, deviled eggs. <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, verse 13, like you get a nevertheless and you think, yeah, okay, good. The story's about to turn around, but it's not that kind of nevertheless. It's a nevertheless, they're going to carry on. Uh, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. That'll do it, won't it? You know, it's the worst storm you've ever seen. Or get the oars out. You know, that I'm sure will be okay. Still trying to save themselves, which is so human. But they could not, surprise, surprise, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them, more and more and more and more. The language is building up uh, to tell us that this is out of control. And they have to get to the point. We all have to get to the point where we realize we are out of control, that we lack the power to save ourselves before we call upon the Savior. And then they do. Then they cried out, they called out, in fact, to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us the innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. How ironic that the pagan sailors are now praying to God. And not just praying to God, but they're actually praying for forgiveness. And then in verse 15, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, more hurling, and the sea ceased from its raging immediately, instantaneously. At this point, it says, The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They are more afraid of God now than the storm, because they've just found something scarier than the storm, something bigger than the storm. They are now afraid of him. That word fear in verse 16, it doesn't mean sort of apprehension of harm. It means revere. It's a word that idiomatically might mean worship, perhaps, fear of the Lord. In uh, Hebrew, my Hebrew is completely rubbish, I just confess that. But the, in Hebrew, 
the words are funny. The word fear is Yahweh. And the next word, Lord, is Yahweh. The Yahweh, Yahweh. It's, it's, it's silly. Funny language. It's, it's sort of jarringly poetic. There's a whole explosion of poetry in chapter 2 in a minute. There's a sort of obviousness of, of the way they're speaking, I think. It's poetically lyrical and sort of gets your attention. And I just think this is what happens. So frequently when the people of God see the forgiveness of God, they, 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 they turn to song. They all become poets. They get giddy. They get silly. We start to sing. Yesterday at a funeral and at an ordination through grief and joy, that the, the, we almost blew the roof out with our singing because the gospel was preached all day long in this place. And when the people of God hear the gospel and receive the gospel, <coughs> they always turn to God in song and singing, giddy with the forgiveness of God. No one ever got giddy over a wedge salad. It never happened. No, you, you, have, you have ever been to a, like the field club and a wedge salad comes out and you start singing, you know, an ode to the shaking bacon? No, it doesn't happen because it's boring. It's just a huge vegetable cut in half. No one ever turned to song because they felt that God had tolerated them. We haven't got any hymns about that. But we got a lot about forgiveness, because it's glorious. To find forgiveness is to find a voice. She, the church, the bride of Christ, always turns to God in song when she is forgiven. And it is really easy in the miracle of the calming of this storm to overlook the true significance of, of the sailor's song. It says here, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That is precisely what was required of a good Jew who feared Yahweh before Jesus. 2 Kings 17, Psalm 76, Psalm 116, sacrifice and vows, sacrifice and vows, always making the sacrifice and the vows. That is how you worship Yahweh. They are doing Hebrew worship properly. This is a group of rough sailors on a boat, pagan sailors, who have seen the power of God to forgive, and now suddenly they've all turned into sort of priests. They're doing Hebrew worship properly. It's amazing. So here is Jonah, a Jew. Not just a Jew, but a prophet of the Jews. He gets his own book of the Bible, a real deal, old covenant prophet, commissioned directly by God himself to preach forgiveness to a pagan world that is hell-bound and that he hates. But he flees from the job and he flees from his God, and yet even so, a whole bunch of pagans still come to faith. How good is God? I mean, honestly. Really? Like, you're thinking he can't forgive you? Come off it. We should be singing. The lesson is clear. God will bring about forgiveness through the most crazy of means, to the most unlikely and undeserving of recipients through the craziest of means, by grace. He'll get you. He is on the move and he is after your soul. He loves you. And everything, every situation is an opportunity to forgive and to proclaim the forgiveness of God. 
For example, this week, a con man set up a fake email address purporting to be me. And he wrote an email to the whole staff team. And he said, I need you to do me a favor real quick. Blessings, Father Alex. And that Ben, reading it quickly in a meeting, uh, initially thought I needed some very subtle help. So he just said, yep, what do you need? And uh, Father Alex replied, I'm not around at the moment. I'm with someone at the hospital with cancer, and I need you to buy a gift card for my niece. Uh, Ben immediately spotted this, noting the Americanisms in the sentence, noting that he was actually at this moment sitting in a room with me eating a cake and that I wasn't actually at the hospital, he started to get quite suspicious. I think somehow initially the title Father didn't alert him. Um, Don't tend to use any of the names of the Holy Trinity for myself. I find Son Alex and Holy Spirit Alex equally offensive. And and, uh, also it's against Christ's express injunction in Scripture as well. So uh, this guy made a a mistake, didn't he? Uh, But Ben went with it for a laugh. He said, what gift do you need? And he got the reply, all I need is a Google Play gift card. I don't think Ben realized how urgent it was for Father Alex, because it took him a whole hour to reply, during which time Ben asked me if he could, quote, fool with the guy for the afternoon, unquote. (laughs) Dear Alex, I'm so sorry, Ben wrote. I was washing my hair. How much do you want on the Google Play gift card, and who should it be addressed to? Father Alex said, $500, just send it to me, because he's very generous to his niece. Ben's very helpful. He said, well, okay, but I could send it directly to your niece. That way I could include a nice birthday card. Does she like balloons? (laughs) Father Alex got assertive. He said, scratch the back of the card to reveal the pin. Take a clean snapshot of the code. Send it to me together with the receipt so I can forward it to my niece. Go pick it up for me right away at the nearest store. Then the charm. You don't need to stress yourself in dropping it off, as I'm not around at the moment, as I told you earlier, remember? (laughs) Another delay. Ben wrote back, Dear Alex, I'm sorry for the delay. I was clipping my toenails. I'll head to Walmart now. Or do you think Giant Eagle would be better, given the ethical implications of shopping at a behemoth like Walmart? These days, not paying their workers fair wages, dot, dot, dot. Should the church be involved with a company like that? Giant Eagle is good too, Ben. You can get the card there, okay? But then Ben started to have some genuine security concerns about this transaction. Uh, What if the NSA hacked the emails and then stole the money uh, before the niece could get it? And uh, Father Alex started to lose a little bit of priestly calm. He said, no, they're not watching any email and nothing will happen to the card. Okay, Ben, just get it the way I told you. Understood? Capiche? This went on for an afternoon and uh, Ben into Alia, claimed his car had broken down, claimed his wallet had caught fire. That's a whole like, story of its own, right? At one point, he even asked the con man to help him pay for a tow truck for his car. Brilliant. Uh, until Ben finally wrote this. And like, there's 12 pages of this stuff. Um, okay, Ben writes, time to come clean. I know you're not really Alex. And my aim was simply to mess with you. I do hope and pray that you become aware of the wrong that you are doing with these scams. There's the sin. Let's call it. If you were ever in a situation where you sincerely needed $500, I would gladly give it to you. There's the cost. Let's pay it. The God who created you and loves you has made you for more than this. No matter how much wrong you've done, 
There is always mercy in Jesus Christ. I am just as much a sinner as you are, and my life has been completely changed by him. There's the grace. Let's preach it. Let's take every opportunity. And then he shared Romans 5, quite a lot of Romans 5. And then he (laughs) signed off with the love of Christ to the man that was trying to rob him. We are not called to tolerate sin. We are called to forgive. And C.S. Lewis once said these words. Real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin. The sin that is left over without any excuse after all the allowances have been made and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness and malice and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the person who has done it. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Would you send us out as messengers and prophets of forgiveness to point to you, to call sin as it is, maybe at cost, knowing the cost ultimately is paid by you. Thus would you leave us only grace. In the name of Jesus.